we are considering the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. And uh, today we come to verse 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now we all agree that uh, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit when he preached to thousands of Jews in Jerusalem at this feast day. And he told them that the Savior whom they'd crucified was the Messiah. He was the one God promised that he was the Son of God. He'd risen from the dead and he was exalted to God's right hand and he was the one who had poured out the Holy Spirit that had caused, oh well, the flames of fire and the rushing mighty wind and... uh, the ability to speak in uh, foreign languages that they had no knowledge of before that day. Many foreigners then who were in the crowd, they uh, could hear the gospel in their own languages. And he preached them. He preached to convict them that what they had done was wrong. He cut them to their hearts. They became deeply disturbed at what they had done. And when Peter finished speaking, hundreds of them hurried, just spontaneously. They weren't invited by Peter or told. They just came to the 120 and to him. And they were surrounded by hundreds of people, all of them, saying to them, Men and brethren, what shall we do then? They believed what Peter said was true. And so, as it was true, then they had to respond. It's Peter's reply that we are interested in today. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And the first thing he said, as we saw last time, was that they needed to repent, to change their minds. Uh, uh, 180 degree change in them. uh, To uh, change their evaluation of who Jesus Christ is. Not somebody worthy of death, but somebody worthy to be sitting at God's right hand. And that's a change. And then uh, to have new emotions and new convictions and a new hungering and thirsting to live a righteous life. And that was the first essential information that he gave them. And then the second was that they must be baptized. And this baptism was for all of them. It wasn't just for the, the really zealous and super Christian. Not for the specially zealous or deeply earnest person, but all of them. And it was not an option. Every one of you, Peter said, everyone who had repented and believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, he he must be baptized. Baptism is for those who accept the message. You see that in verse 41. It is for disciples. It is for believers. It is for Repent us, every single one of them, however young, however old. If they could make a credible profession of repentance, then they had to be baptized. And the important thing was what was in their hearts. We're given a description of their hearts in verse 46. We're told they had glad and sincere hearts. So it's not that they were a certain age, they were teenagers. It is not that uh, they learned a formula that they could repeat 
or that they knew certain doctrines. Uh, they knew what was expected of them. What was happening in their hearts, the great dispositional complex that's at the center of our lives, out of which all the issues of life come. Were they sincere in their hearts to confess him before men? So did they believe in their hearts and confess by baptism that Jesus Christ was Lord, that he was indeed Jehovah Jesus? <clears throat> now, firstly, let me ask, why did Peter ask them to be baptized? Well, Jesus Christ himself had been baptized by John the Baptist, and he approved of everything that uh, John said and did. And those who uh, repented and believed on him and became his disciples, they were also baptized, not by Jesus himself, but they were baptized by, by his apostles, so that those 500 of his flock that he met with on the hill of ascension before he returned to his father in Galilee, all of them were baptized. And his last words to his apostles were, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Peter was doing this because it was exemplified in the one he loved and honored, Jesus Christ. And he commanded him to do it. To make rebel blasphemers and crucifiers of Christ, to make them disciples, and then baptize them. And without hesitation, then, on this day, they were, we're told in verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized. You accept the message about Jesus Christ. And so that's the pattern that we meet then all through the remainder of the uh, book of Acts. We find uh, all the Samaritans who believed under Philip's awakening ministry that, that they were baptized. All the Gentiles in Cornelius' household who repented, they were baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch and Saul of Tarsus and Lydia and the Philippian jailer and so on. They were all baptized when they repented of their sin and professed to be disciples of the Lord Jesus. There wasn't a convert in the Acts of the Apostles who wasn't baptized, not one. And then it started. First, second, fifth, tenth, 15th, 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st century, until this moment. People repent of their sins and they say, he's, he's my savior. He's the son of God and they're baptized. Here's a, let me read an example to you um, of Charles Harden Spurgeon and what happened to him when he as a teenage boy was baptized. To me, there seemed to be a great concourse around the river on that weekday, dressed, I believe, in a jacket with a boy's turned-down collar. I attended the service previous to the ordinance, but all remembrance of it has gone from me. My thoughts were in the water, sometimes with my Lord in joy and sometimes with myself in trembling awe at making so public a confession. There were first to be baptized two women, Diana Wilkinson and Eunice Fuller. And I was asked to conduct them through the water 
to the minister who was standing in the river Lark. But this I most timidly declined. It was a new experience to me, never having seen a baptism before, and I was afraid of making some mistake. The wind blew down the river with a cutting blast as my turn came to wade into the flood. But after I'd walked a few steps and noted the people on the ferry boat and in boats and on either shore, I felt as if heaven and earth and hell might all gaze upon me, for I was not ashamed there and then to own myself as a follower of the Lamb. My timidity was washed away. It floated down the river into the sea and must have been devoured by the fishes, for I've never felt anything of that kind since. Baptism also loosed my tongue, and from that day it's never been quiet. I lost a thousand fears in the river Lark, and I found that in keeping his commandments there is great reward. So Peter told the repenting disciples in Jerusalem that the next step then, after repenting, was to be baptized. And he told them this as the servant of Jesus Christ, because the Lord Jesus Christ had told him, make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So secondly, I want to ask what was involved in baptism. Well, firstly, you'll notice that Peter didn't present being baptized as an option. Peter didn't tell them, well, if you're um, a little embarrassed, you know, you're a rather a shy person, and uh, if you want to think of being baptized surrounded by people, uh, well, we'll arrange private baptisms at midnight, and you can be baptized there, and there won't be hardly anyone there. No, he didn't say that. They were to burn their bridges when they got baptized. They were to publicly identify with Jesus Christ. They were to be baptized, Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ. That was their name from now on. Under that name, they were to live their lives. They were to say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian, they were to say. Were they ashamed of him? who had been crucified because he loved them? Was our Lord baptized in public? Yes. And our baptisms are not to be secret. He was saying, look world, look friends, look family. I just want to tell you, I belong to Jesus Christ. He's my God. He died in my place and no sacrifice I make can be too great for him. Um, I was baptized last Sunday. I want you to know that. If your fiancé, if she told you that she would agree to marrying you only under very limited circumstances that the bare minimum of two witnesses were to be present in a distant town at 9 a.m. On a, on a Thursday morning with no guests, no reception, no ring, and she wouldn't be changing her last name. She was obviously rather uncertain and embarrassed about marrying you. You'd think twice, wouldn't you, about marrying her when she was so uncertain and laid down all these conditions? You'd think twice about marrying her. 
Jesus Christ has effected a far greater change in your status, your entry into the glorious body of Christ. How wonderful that you've been justified and all your sins pardoned and you've been adopted into his family and you have a new heart and you're joined to Jesus Christ. He's working all things together for your good and he's going to take you to a new heavens and a new earth and you are rather ashamed of him. So to these great privileges, the inauguration is also great. Um, There's no form that you just sign your name and uh, there's a stamped address envelope and you send it off then to a box number. Not like that. It's baptism, he says. And he didn't tell them to baptize themselves. They knew what baptism was. Uh, new converts to Judaism were baptized. And John, the forerunner of Jesus, baptized. And all the people went out to hear him. It was not because uh, John baptized in the River Jordan and uh, there was a surge through all of uh, Israel saying, uh, has the gift of prophecy come back? Is he now an Old Testament prophet? And he's in our midst again. And they all went out to hear him. It was not because of the crowds that he was arrested and murdered. It was because he called on everybody in the country to repent and be baptized. And he spared no one, not even the king. Herod had taken his brother's wife and lived with her. And John the Baptist nailed him. And the price of that sermon was his life. So people listening to Peter understood the meaning of the word baptized. But he didn't tell them, well, you go and get baptized now. Baptize yourselves in the Jordan as if they could carry on living the rest of their lives just as they lived it for the past 30 or 40 years. No. Be baptized, he said. In other words, they were to approach him. And they were to approach uh, the other 120 Christians who were there full of the Spirit of God. These repenting men were to go to these Christians and humbly confess their faith in Jesus Christ to them and tell of their repentance and ask those in leadership. They were not to ask the novices who had only been uh, Christians uh, a matter of a couple of months to baptize them. But they were to ask the leaders if if they would baptize them. They were being introduced, you see, to a whole new way of life now. Do you understand what baptism signified? That from that moment on there was a new pattern to their weeks. The first day of the week now was special. It was a celebration of the rising of Jesus Christ or the coming of the Holy Spirit. This was the first day of the week that Peter was preaching on. How they were going to spend their evenings, how they were going to spend their money, what friendships they would find, who they were going to marry. And they couldn't ignore any of those things. They were confronted by a new structure. 
And they had to enter that structure where there was a, a new authority. And they were to submit to it. They couldn't be loners. That was the end. They were being baptized into a, a body by the Spirit of God. And it was symbolized by the water baptism. They were from now on becoming members of a congregation. They were going to be members of an assembly that gathered together a body, particularly a church. Peter and the others knew about the church because Jesus had spoken about it. He had said to them, I will build my church. And the gates of hell wouldn't prevent him building his church for the next 2,000 years so that thousands of miles away from Jerusalem in a little place called Aberystwyth, 2,000 years later, there would be churches. There would be Christ's church still existing and, and growing. You remember that, don't you, Mark 16, uh, Matthew 16? And then, uh, do you remember what Peter said, heard next from Jesus? He told Peter, do you remember? That he would give Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and what Peter, Peter loosed on earth would be loosed in heaven, and what Peter bound on earth would be bound in heaven. You see the link now with this incident and baptism and entry into a new community, the redeemed community of God. That um, a man came to Peter on the day of Pentecost and he said, oh, I want you to baptize me. And Peter asked him a number of simple questions about the way of salvation. If you stand before God, he said to him, uh, and God says to you, why should I let you into heaven? What, what answer would you give? You know, questions like that. What, what salvation? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? This man was quite confused. He, he hadn't grasped the Christian faith. He didn't know that Jesus Christ was God the Son he didn't know why the Son of God had become the Lamb of God and had died on, on the cross. Um, he wanted to be baptized. It turned out that he was just shocked at the way that the chief priests, uh, Annas and Caiaphas, had dealt with this wonderful teacher and healer. His, his auntie had been healed, and he knew other people who had been healed, and he'd been really moved by the teaching. He said, Something must be done. I, I must be baptized. But that wasn't, that wasn't a good reason to be baptized. That something must be done. So Peter said, wait a minute now. Come and have instruction. Uh, uh, the fellowship and the instruction of the apostles. Come and not, we want to baptize you, but you need to be taught more. You need to come to our meetings more and learn more. And he learned there the gospel. We deserve eternal death because we are sinners. But Jesus Christ, because he loved us, died for us. And then he could understand why he needed to be baptized into that truth and to serve that gospel. And the God who had approved of Peter saying, wait, 
was the God who then approved of Peter baptizing him. Peter had the keys, you see. And when he opened the room and said, come, my brother, now, come into fellowship with us. God noticed that in the book of life in heaven, that man's name was written. And when first Peter said, not yet, then God approved of that too. And it's just the same today. That's how the church should work. <laughs> With the authority that's vested in then the, the leadership of the church and imparted at the church meeting. Matthew Poole, do you know, do you have those three lovely volumes of the Puritan Matthew Poole, his commentary on the whole Bible and all the comments that he makes? Some of you I know have it. He says some things here. I'm going to read to you a little, two sentences from Matthew Poole. Never done that before. They were written 350 years ago. And they're just clear and helpful. I don't want to say anything that Men didn't believe 350 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago. I'm not a man who's got wonderful new ideas of my own. I'm in a river that flows from the coming of Jesus into the world and his apostles and what they wrote in the Bible. The sense is this, Peter says, about the keys. I betrust you and the rest of my apostles with the whole administration of my gospel. You'll lay the foundation of the Christian church and you'll administer the affairs of it. You'll open the truths of the gospel to the whole world and you'll govern those who receive it. Our Savior by this promise declared his will that his apostles should settle the affairs of the gospel church. And they do, don't they? They still. We say when we gather together, well, what do the apostles say? What does the Bible say about this? And uh, they determine what's lawful and unlawful and settle the rules according to which all succeeding ministers and officers in his church should act. And our Lord would confirm it in heaven. I can't think that the sense of binding and loosing here is excommunicating and absolving. It's a doctrinal and it's a judicial determination of what's lawful, what we should do in the church of Jesus Christ. So baptism is into then this organization. Thirdly, it will cause division in your life. Okay, You understand that once Peter had preached like that to them, and told them not only to repent, but they all ought to be baptized now. Well, there was a bifurcation of this uh, Jerusalem congregation. They were wild. They shook their heads and they looked big-eyed at one another, at what they were hearing. They rejected Peter and his message and complained. They weren't baptized. But there was this. This gathering, these new disciples stretching out right through the great squares of the temple. There they were, and they were, their faces were, were surprised and delighted. And they seemed to be in the majority in this case. There was a living spiritual movement 
which began with the first pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and it's gone on ever since. And it motivated 3,000 people to move from uh, non-repentance to repentance and unbelief to believing. We told verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So you do some simple sums, don't you? Number of disciples in the morning that believed in Jesus Christ, 120. Acts 1.15. Supper time, the number of those that believed in Jesus Christ, 3,120. The 3,000 were added, that's the phrase Paul said, they were added to them, added to the 120. Someone did the arithmetic, someone counted them. And this growing number began to meet together, verse 46, every day, these thousands, they would gather. They would sing psalms, and when they would sing, the Lord is my shepherd, I should not want, they knew who the good shepherd was that they were singing about. And now what could Caiaphas do? What could Annas do? What could the chief priests do? About 3,120 and growing every day could... He crucified a lot of them. There were some very significant people. There were top families that were affected. Influential men, businessmen. Members of the Sanhedrin. We know there were one or two of them. And they broke bread together every day. And they sang the praises of God together. Verse 47. And it was hard to keep track of them. They were springing up like mushrooms. All over Jerusalem. Every suburb. And out into Galilee where Jesus had done, and John the Baptist had done such a, an awakening ministry. They were there. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's how chapter 2 of Acts ends. It ends with a picture of, of great growth. So when you were saved, and you repented, and you were baptized, you had no question, shall I submit to the authority of the officers and the preacher and the teaching that he gives us from the Bible? There was no way that you'd say, well, you know, I'm not that sort of person really. I'd that mixes, I, my mother and father were very private and I was raised in that way and I don't, I don't belong to any organization really and uh, uh, I, I'll, I'll occasionally pop in to a, to a church. But um, I'd rather not be baptized and, and join and identify myself like this daily, weekly, singing God's praise The Holy Spirit will help you to mortify those feelings. Not all feelings are good feelings. And he can change our personalities. And if you're bumptious and loud, he can sweeten you and calm you down. And if you're painfully shy and a loner, he can change that. The Christian never accepts their feelings. The Christian seeks by help from God. To elevate and ennoble and enrich what is there 
what the Holy Spirit has given to us in the new birth. So they got baptized and then they sat where the Christians sat. And they learned what Christians learn. And they sang what Christians sang. And they gave to the causes of the spread of the kingdom of God that Christians give to. And they broke bread with them. Fourthly, baptism is the end of a self-centered lifestyle. That's what we've got today. That's our challenge, isn't it? That's what I face in Aberystwyth. That's what I face on the doors and uh, in my street. And with members of my family, they're so self-centered. It's called the postmodern age. And uh, people, even Christians, take baggage with them into the kingdom of God. And they take the baggage of the postmodern ethos that uh, they have had. They hardly ever, in other words, view the Christian life through congregational eyes, through fellowship eyes, through commitment to one another's eyes. These people, they don't make um, membership of a church a priority. When they come to think about Sundays and whether they will go to a church, well, the place they'll choose will be influenced by the flavor that they pick up or they hear about of a certain gathering. What best fits their personalities? What best fits their tastes? Uh, and their particular set of desires. There's the young and the restless, and they're looking for a cutting edge. And then old age pensioners are looking for traditional. And parents are looking for a creche, and the youth are looking for cool activities. And singles are looking for love. And confident people are looking for a church where they can teach where they can speak and lead and make a contribution. They're looking for a church through the eyes of self. They say, now my vision of a church is this. They like to use that word vision. And they've, they've got certain feelings and attitudes, and they're looking for a church that will match their feelings. And many churches then, they... Uh, they cope with this kind of individualism. They seek to create an atmosphere where people can enjoy their own individual experience. They will create activities for them to do. And those become then, really, the, the structures of the church. Not um, the 39 Articles of Religion. Not the 1689 Confession of Faith or other doctrinal standards. Church becomes a place for people to get a spiritual experience. It's not a place for mutual accountability and mutual service and mutual growth and biblical instruction. Church has become like a fast food restaurant. You get a polystyrene box, in a few minutes you enjoy the meal and you leave it with no commitments attached. 
So the church and its membership has really been undermined and the exciting thing is a parachurch. Postmodern people are saying, uh, I don't feel accountable to anyone for what I believe or how I live. And so church membership for them is an option. It's a good thing, but it's not a biblical necessity. And people are prepared to church hop for the their whole lives or simply stay at home. They might walk the coastal path if it's a dry day and worship God their own way. Or they might occasionally attend a church, but, but irregularly and never join it. Fifthly, baptism is the beginning of a lifelong commitment. You know, even when some people join a church, they, they don't remain committed to it. It's not like a marriage for them. Till death is to part. Well, we don't find many people leaving church today because that there is doctrinal error. That there's a denial of the Trinity or the deity of Christ or justification by faith or or that there's worldly worship, or that there's some ethical compromise with uh, uh, biblical concerns. It's not that. They, they just get restless after a while. And they hear about a buzz that comes from another congregation. And uh, so they slip out and they go there. They'll jump ship again if their feelings are hurt. Postmoderns are, uh, are quick to change membership for the slightest reason. Gone are the days when people were faithful to a church and they worked through tensions and problems in the membership and difficulties with the minister and some of the things he said or his funny ways. You know, there were two people in the church at Philippi. There were two women and their names were Euodia and Syntyche. And they just didn't get on. So, uh, what did Paul say to them? Paul said, be of the same mind. Well, you know what you hear this day, you hear, um, you've got to find a church that's right for you. That's what you hear all the time, everywhere. But uh, in Jerusalem, there was only one church. One church. And people repented. And people were baptized. And people grew in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. And they talked through and prayed through the differences that they had. And so Paul tells a congregation, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of, of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 3,000 came, just all new. How would we manage it? I was in a church recently where 100 people have, have joined in the last two years and the, 
the older members there who've been used to certain certain relationships within the church are outnumbered. But they're working through it. It's the problem of life. It's the problem of God's blessing. And with the blessing and with the growth, God gives grace so that we uh, love one another and are patient with one another and gentle and long-suffering and deem other people better than ourselves. Uh, The third thing, the last thing I want to say is that baptism and joining the church are, uh, are your first blessed duties. Now, I thought, found this very interesting. That, um, firstly, in Acts 5, there were people in, uh, in Jerusalem, uh, a few months later, who were afraid to join the church. You know what happened? Uh, Ananias and Sapphira were a, a greedy couple who yet had some interest in religion and wanted to make a splashy gesture by telling the church that uh, they'd sold a piece of land and all the money they were giving to the church, but they kept back uh, quite a a bit for themselves. And they lied in a church meeting where Jesus Christ meets, where two or three are gathered in, in their name. They're interrogated, they lie, and God judges them. Takes their lives away. And people who were really taken up by this Jesus movement suddenly backed off as they thought of the ethical implications of what it means for your life, how you live, what you do, what you say, that God is listening and you're expected to to be free from deceit and lying and every such thing. And so uh, we are told no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. That's what we read in Acts 5.13. No one dared to join them. They wouldn't join the church because of this. You join a church. You join with other people and you come together. You join. You um, ask the elders... Can you see them about joining? Why you want to join a, a, a congregation and you agree and you're baptized in a repentant spirit because you trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if they spell out things and the cost is too high, you withdraw. And people were because of Ananias and, and Sapphira. But that was very temporary because God honored, God loved them. And God honored them for what they did. And that they were unwavering in their commitment to righteousness and truth. God bless them. We are told that more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their numbers. The next verse, verse 14. They were added. We're telling you to join us. Who trust in Jesus Christ. And then the second thing that was very uh, unusual for me and fascinating was the way that Saul of Tarsus was forbidden to join with the church in Jerusalem. You remember what happened? He was on the way to Damascus. He met Christ. He went to 
a house in the street of Strait, and there Ananias laid his hands on him, and uh, he saw again, and uh, he was baptized, and then he began to speak straight away, going to the synagogues and saying, I've done a terrible thing. I came here to condemn you and judge you, but this Jesus that I hated, I now realize he's the Son of God, he's the Lord. And the Jews heard him for a while and then were filled with rage against him. And there was a group that was going to assassinate him. They guarded the exits, the city gates of, uh, of the city of Damascus. And so Paul escaped by being let down in a, in a basket on a rope down the city wall. And he hurried off and he walked all the way back to Jerusalem, from Damascus to Jerusalem. When he got to Jerusalem, didn't find a big welcome. Verse 26, Acts 9. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him, not believing he really was a disciple. So he comes back to his hometown. He comes back deeply repentant, deeply ashamed of how he had lived there. A real man, a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his first wish, of course, is to join the church. To join it. Well, he can sit with them, but he... They won't let him join. He wanted to be welcomed into membership because he loved being with Christian people. And he wanted to hear gospel preaching. And he wanted to participate in the Lord's Supper. And he was conscious of his accountability to them and they to him to submit to one another and edify one another and exhort one another and admonish one another and pray for one another. And he wanted to do all those things. He said, back off. We don't know if you're a spy that's been sent in to take our names down and you're going to kill us. And he longed for their fellowship. They wouldn't let him join. He wanted to care for them and obey them and spread the gospel. And he wanted to listen to the preachers there and grow because he had much to learn as a young Christian. Back off, they said. It wasn't until another wiser Christian called Barnabas came and talked to him. Said, come on, men. Come on now. He's a real believer. There's a change in him. What are you doing judging him for what he once did? And they talked to him. And they repented and accepted him and received him. When you become a Christian, you join yourself to a church. But a church also joins itself to you. And has to be very careful how it does this from the beginning. James tells us about the situation that was there in the early church when if a guy in a chariot came up and left his servant outside the church building to guard the horse and the chariot, and he came in, uh, a rich ruler, they fawned on him, the deacons at the door. Welcome, they said. Oh, they bowed to him. and They showed him the best seat in the house. But if a little old illiterate lady came in, shuffling, smelling, they said, find a place. Or sit on the floor. And James is so cross with them, isn't he? That they're not accepting. Believers. Repenters. It happens. It happens here. When awkward individuals come 
and uh, nice, smiling, smart, wise, mature Christians ignore them because it's not their kind, not their type. Oh, quickly hurry on. Take interest in them. Accept them. Ask them how they are. They may need some help. You don't know what good you can do to people. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this ordinance that you have given to us at the beginning of the Christian life. Thank you that you require a public confession that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Thank you for bringing us here. Oh, deliver us from the spirit we've just talked about, about suspicion of people because of their past, or of disdain of people because they are poor, and oh, excitement about people that are wealthy. Oh, deliver us from such a spirit, we pray thee, merciful God, and uh, make us those that learn from one another and bless one another and are so thankful for a gospel church and do everything to keep the unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace. Lord, save us from Satan's devices that he would tear this congregation apart. Help us, particularly at this year in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.